Sarah Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. What is Celebrity Memoir Book Club? If I were to say it concisely, we're two chatty bitches reading the memoirs so that you don't have to, and then giving our hot takes. Yes, we give spicy hot takes. This is an opinion-heavy podcast. And so I want to say from this point forward, we are living here in the year of our Lord 2021. The world is a steaming pile of content. If you <laughs> don't like this content, find a different one. I would like to point out, though, we do love our worms and we have a growing number of worms every week. Welcome new worms. Welcome back old worms. Statistically... Nobody on the planet listens to this podcast. I cannot emphasize how easy it is to not listen. So if you don't like what you're hearing, feel free to just choose not to hear it. I am a pro-choice girl. This is a pro-choice podcast. Choose to do something else. If you feel like aborting us from your playlist, who's to stop you? <laughs> this ain't Texas. This is the air where the internet lives. Skylaw, baby. <laughs> And do you know who is the air beneath my wings? Tell me. Hit me. Is it the reviewers? It's the five-star reviewers. And who might those people be? Mary Berry. Oh, my God. I'd love to bake you a cake. Un Axe Luna. Oh, I would never ax you. Sexy Girly Money. Yes, bitch. Get that money. Uh... Four billion. I'm not going to count the zeros. I'm just going to assume billion. Mindy Lou, 1021. Like Mindy Lou, who, who is only two. Jasmine Burrows. Oh, let's burrow together into a wormhole. Thank you for being here. Usages Irene. Thank you so much. Nostalgic breakdown. Okay, well, I don't think we need to break down. Let's build each other up. RFM 11238, my lucky number. I really want that URL. I think you're going to get it. Unsuspecting Pog. I won't tell him you're coming. I have better taste than this. Well, I don't, and I'm happy you're here. DLJ 2014, the best year for music. I ain't clever. You are to me. E Lean 2. I'll lean with you. Neoma Anu, thank you so much. New Grace fan, so graceful, so beautiful. Stephanie Clover, four-leaf clover perhaps, because you seem pretty lucky to me. Fun tune-in. Oh, we're having a fun tune here. Carriera145, thank you so much for carrying us with this five-star rating. E.E. Giap, thank you for your... Excellent review. Mall Pro, an absolutely professional take on our podcast. No My Hand I Hado, thank you so much. Bites fan, I'm your biggest fan. Emma Jane, one, two, three, four. Thank you for putting the numbers in order. Video five, make it six, baby. Ashley, two, one, two, one. I won't even begrudge you for being another Ashley. Saucy CJ, oh, that's spicy. Aaron Hewlett, let me say thank you. <laughs> Loose2792, thank you very much. Thank you, Becca. No, thank you, Becca. Woodley Park 6574 Oh, I would love to take a walk in the park. Andrea Perkle, your review made me very perky. Vintage Marie, thank you for this blast from the past. Beautiful review. Damn okay, Becky. Well, I say damn okay, Becky. Thank you for this review. <laughs> team Tasha. I didn't watch that season, but I'm on whatever team you're on. MCAT206, thanks for this cat's meow of a review. Megan in Melbourne. Wow, I can't believe a Melbourne review showed up on the US reviews. That's quite cool. You're very international. Burn Katie Burns, hot like fire. 
Ashley Birdface Killa. Another Ashley. My God. You know what? Actually, let's make a club. Sam 39698093. Beautiful sequence. J H B D P I C X B 2 E I. Another great code for us to remember next time. Brewster Erica. I thought it was about a coffee brewing situation and I thought, yum. Need to sleep 719. Oh, I hope you've gotten sleep. Poo cocky. <laughs> That's a cute name. Aaron SO6. I say SOS. I love this review and I'm I need some help. Rose34587. A rose by any other name would not be as beautiful of a review. C bling 13, another lucky number, drenched in bling, and McKenna K18. K. Thank you for these reviews, you guys. What a dream come true. I love them so much. And if you didn't fast forward through that, thank you. <laughs> Ashley, picture this. Sure. You're writing a memoir about your own life. I can see it. In the context of a memoir, what would this last week be chaptered? This week's chapter would be some advice to my readers, and it would be called A Reminder to Clean Your Ducts, because I had a big fat mental breakdown on Wednesday. And okay, I know I say that I never cry, and I do rarely cry, but I rarely weep. <laughs> I had a good old full-blown heave cry this week and it is not common for me. I don't feel. One day an expert will come through every week <laughs> of this podcast and let you know statistically how likely it is for you to cry a week. I know it sounds like I cry a lot because I've mentioned it, what, six times on this podcast. It's because every time it happens, I talk about it. <laughs> every time it happens, I'm like, I can't believe this happened. Maybe it's because of sad girl Twitter, like leading me into this belief that people cry every day. I have like a combination of things going on right now. Some valid reasons to be deeply upset, some wildly invalid, but once piled onto these other reasons, I really just could not function this week. It really took a toll on my day. And then I recovered pretty quick, honestly, because I just had to clean my ducts. A summertime flash flood of yeah. emotion. <laughs> and how'd you feel after? Fine. I had a great set afterwards. One day heals all wounds. Until next week when you... <laughs> Rarely cry again. <laughs> Claire, mm -hmm. if you were to write a memoir and you had to title this week as a chapter, what would it be? It's so funny that you gave advice for your week because mine is a parable. You taught me this word the other day. Yeah. A parable for anyone who's like Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> a parable is like a short story with a moral. Okay. You find them in the Bible a lot. As you guys know, I joined a fancy gym, and so I'm going a lot. I went on Saturday to a yoga class, and I went, and immediately I did not like the class, and I did not like the teacher, and I was in there, and I did not like the way she gave instructions. I couldn't follow along. I felt left behind. I was two minutes in, and already I was like, this is going to be a waste of a fucking hour. I am mad that I came here. I'm mad at her. And then I just like kept going with it. And then slowly I realized it's not that she was a bad teacher giving bad instructions. It's just that the class wasn't for me. It was too hard for me. It was a more advanced class than I am used to taking, and I couldn't keep up. And I was like, Claire, it is literally ridiculous for you to be holding this teacher accountable to your lack of being good at yoga. It is crazy that you came in and you were like, this class sucks and that woman sucks. Just because everybody here is better than you and they're not going to slow down the entire class to make sure that you can keep up. This is your first time here. The idea that they should reorganize the entire hour around your limited ability 
It's so selfish and entitled. And then once I like let go of that idea that every single part of the class would be perfect to my needs, I was able to take what I could and just kind of child's pose the rest. And by the end, I was like excited at the idea of coming back next week and being able to do this really tough yoga class and actually advance my skills. There was three of us in that class who were in way over our head. One woman also just left after 15 minutes. And I was like, yeah, good for you. You don't need to spend an hour in child's pose because she didn't even try. She gave up real quick. And I guess this is a parable. Somebody wrote in and left the review that they missed when I would go on like insane screeds against bad reviews. And so this is for you, my favorite listener who likes it when I'm hateful. To all of the haters out there who <laughs> leave us one star reviews, you can fucking sit in child's pose in hell, you dumb bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and the people worse than that are the people who leave medium reviews. And they're like, I actually love this podcast, except for this one thing they said one time that I disagree with. First and foremost, we're very open to DMs. We've had some really constructive conversations in the DMs. And so when these people leave reviews that are just nonsense, like we got a review recently that we were just like ugly. Listen, I'm not ugly. I've dated multiple professional athletes. Yeah. And (laughs) I used to be definitively ugly. And now I'm like a definite mid-tier bitch that can dress up to an upper mid bitch. Okay. (laughs) I think that there's so many uglier people out there. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that this is absolutely an audio medium. If you don't like our faces, wh- why did you write that? <laughs> our picture is not even on the cover art. We're nowhere to be seen. <laughs> if you think we're ugly, you did that to yourself, sir. You sought out that affront to your eyeballs. <laughs> so this week's memoirist, Jerry Hallowell. Do you recognize that name? I do. It comes with a side of ginger spice. <laughs> As you guys may know her, Ginger Spice from the band The Spice Girls, she wrote a book called If Only. And this book comes to us from the year after she left The Spice Girls. So hot off the tail of her whirlwind career of two years. Hot out of Spice World. We entered Jerry's world. Before we learned about Jerry's world through Jerry's perspective, what did you know about her? I would say I knew every single Spice Girls song and I knew who she was and what outfits she wore. But... About Jerry's personality specifically, not a damn thing. Mm -hmm. Especially because I only knew her personality as through the lens of her being Ginger Spice, which was like a loud, emphatic, sexy bitch. And so I didn't know that she was this like thoughtful, mentally ill person. (laughs) Claire, Mm -hmm. before you opened If Only... What did you know about Jerry Hollowell? I also knew not a lot about her. I personally was a baby spice growing up. Mm-hmm. You were a... I was a sporty spice. Sure. Something I will say is funny is Ginger to me was always like the scariest one, which may yes. be ironic because there is a scary spice. <laughs> now that I realized how young I was when they were a hit, I realized I was three when Wannabe dropped their first single. So I was really young when they were out and no wonder I related to baby. I was literally a baby. Yeah. But Ginger always had this thing where she seemed to be very old and like not for me and like kind of out of control. I do think she was the most overtly sexual one maybe yeah I mean that way it's funny that like as a child I picked up on that and was just like not that one I'm not that one so I was very excited to learn about her you guys you're gonna love this writer it really reminds me of if anybody read Guitar Girl growing up it was exactly like Guitar Girl I'm so excited to get into it Guitar Girl was my favorite book like in ninth grade I want to read Guitar Girl you'd love it that's exactly the kind of book you'd like (laughs) (laughs) okay let's talk Jerry if only So, Jer. Geraldine. 
Geraldine Halliwell. She was born in 1972 in a part of England. I'm not going to get into which part because let me tell you something. This book was British as hell and that is a different language to me. Didn't she spend her whole life in Waterford? Yeah, but what the fuck is that? Is that a town? Is that a state? Is that a county? A Hertfordshire? The amount of Britishness in here. This is one of the first sentences in the book. We were in the same class at junior school and used to play True Dare, Double Dare, Love Kisser, Promise in the Stock Cupboard. Stock Cupboard. It's a cupboard where you keep your stock. What kind of stock? Chicken stock. Junior school. It's like before you get to senior school. I do think all of this is stuff you could infer. <laughs> Let me give you the background. Jerry's dad, Mr. Hollowell. Yeah. He's old as shit. Yeah. He meets her mom when he's like 50 and she is 20, fresh off the boat from Spain. She doesn't know any better. He convinces her that she's rich. They fall in love. They're married within six weeks. Only after they get married does she find out that his wife is not dead and his kids are not in boarding school. But he is divorced and the kids live downstairs or something. And he is actually broke as a joke. I will say her mother came from Spain. And here's something for everybody saying that we're not feminist. <laughs> Jerry's grandfather met the grandmother when he was a prisoner and she was the jail guard. You heard it here first, ladies. Women can be jail guards too. I don't think that this proves that we're feminists. Well, I'm sharing the information about women having all kinds of jobs, not just being mothers and housekeepers. And podcasters. They can also... Jail. <laughs> imprison people. <laughs> Like boys. Men. And then fall in love like the dumb bitches they are. <laughs> Can a lady keep it in her pants? Jesus Christ, you're on the job. <laughs> I don't co-sign. I think it's empowering to take advantage of a man when he's in a position of inferiority as prisoner. <laughs> so Jerry was the third of three children, except for the two other children that her dad had lied about having. So he was old when she was born. A geriatric pregnancy <laughs> from the man. That's right. At CNBC, we think it's we are pregnant, not she is pregnant. We're pregnant with his geriatric sperm. Okay, serious. Now we're going to be serious. Anyway, the mother basically supported the family. She took on multiple jobs. She was a cleaning person. She would leave at 6 a.m. and get back at like 7 p.m. Because of that, the children were very much expected to pitch in around the house. They had to cook their own breakfast, do all the chores. The father did nothing but like jerk off in the closet, I think, in the stock <laughs> cupboard. At one point, the dad lived in a different room and would just kind of stay upstairs. Like the mom and dad split rooms. Well, I think the mom took the couch and he took the room. And then she makes a big deal about how his morning routine was just hawking loogies and then like leaving the tissue everywhere. So by the time she's 12, they formally divorce and he moves out. She definitely acts out. She says that at one point during her grade school years, she just became a compulsive liar just to win people over. And then as soon as she got busted, I think the shame washed it out of her, but... She definitely always felt like the poorest kid in school. She felt like she was always an outcast. She was called the poorest kid in school. She ended up getting into sort of, I think, what we have as charter schools, where you apply for a school across town, but it's still technically a public school. And the teachers would be like, how lucky is someone like Jerry to get to come to a school like this? This old raggedy bitch. Well, young. This nubile raggedy bitch. <laughs> this doe-eyed sack of garbage. <laughs> We are in a silly, goofy mood. Another thing that was important about her childhood is not only did she feel like an outcast because they were a poorer family. And obviously when you're growing up, especially in this era, like clothes were so defining. Like she really got to thrifting and making her own cool outfits very young. The other thing that set her apart in her mind is that she was flat as a motherfucking door. Who can relate? Show of hands. We're both raising our hands. She always loved the idea of performing. 
She did have a ton of stage fright as a child. Yeah. She was constantly auditioning for plays and then getting nervous the day of. But she would sing for her family on Sundays. That was like her big thing. On Sunday, they would have family meal and they'd be like, sing for us, Jerry. And she would sing. When she was 12 and her parents got divorced, her dad ended up moving into a council estate flat a bit far away. There was just very little supervision. It seems like she was just out there. It was important to her to go to that fancier school. But then by the time she was 16, she dropped out. Well, she didn't drop out. You know how here we have our regular grades of school and then it stops and you go to college? Mm-hmm. I think they have more starts and stops that you can kind of pick and choose from. So she decides that she could have gone to college like her sister, mm-hmm. Natalie, who went into tourism, or she could have gone to do her A-levels and then gone on to university. So I guess that means that college to them is like a trade school that you start at 17. I think so. British listeners, please correct us. Explain this. So she had always, always, always wanted to be famous. That was like her driving force. We didn't really know what it was going to be. She didn't have any specific direction, but she wanted to be famous. There was this opportunity to audition for a play, the West End revival of Annie. She wanted to like audition, get an agent, really start making a run for it as a youngster. And her mom absolutely was not having it. And her mom literally said to her, I'm not having my daughter becoming a Judy Garland. I know what happens to child stars. They commit suicide. Her mom was very strict, very much a hard ass. Very Catholic. She was a Catholic very girl from Catholic. Spain. But I will say, we always say that when someone becomes a child star, no matter how much in the book they want to be like, my parents never pushed me. My parents never made me. If your parents let you do it, there was... Illness there. Illness. Meanwhile, her father, of course, was an unwell person. Yeah. He was in his 50s. I guess he was in his 60s at this point. He did not have a job. His thing was once in a while, he would fix up an old car. He loved her dreams and he would take her to all these auditions because he had the free time. Lord Mm -hmm. knows he had the free time. But he also was somebody who always thought he was one get rich quick scheme away from making it to millions. And apparently he had had a lot of promise and ups and downs and just squandered it all. I think he didn't have the drive. I think he had the ideas, but not the follow through. He was a big thrifter. He was always taking her to like car boot sales because he loved to like find an old toaster and then hope to one day fix it up and sell it for a profit. And instead he just ended up with like an apartment full of old toasters that didn't work. (laughs) He was that kind of guy. But she said, I still wanted to be famous, of course, although I didn't know exactly how I was going to achieve this. Probably by being a TV presenter, a pop star, an actress, I thought. The precise details weren't particularly relevant to a teenager. It was simply going to happen. And when it did, I was going to buy a huge house like in Gone with the Wind that was big enough for mom to live in at one end and dad to live in the other. That way I could be with both of them, even if they couldn't live with each other. That's cute. So I do see a little bit of Jessica Simpson in here. Like, if I could fix this with money. It reminds me of Vanderpump Rules and the idea, which I think is like pretty ahead of its time here. The idea of fame for fame's sake. Yeah. It's very like, I'm going to be famous. I don't know what the reason will be, but I'll just audition for anything. And... That stays true. I mean, it was very random that she became a pop star because she would have taken truly anything. The other thing that comes out of her childhood, I think is of note, is she says, my eating habits were terrible and another source of conflict at mealtime. I hated almost all vegetables and dairy products. I was also made to stay at the table for what seemed like hours, making myself physically ill as I vomited up Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. I was then forced to re-eat them with my mother holding my jaw shut. What the fuck? She had to eat her own puke at dinner? Just to get the nutrients. And at that point, how nutritious could it be? Mama birding her own damn self. It's like when you boil vegetables, the nutrients fall out sometimes. How nutrient dense could it have been once spit up? Her sister was very beautiful and her mother was really beautiful. And I think that's why the door situation on her front end was so problematic for her. She was also small. 
Yeah, she's, she's five, five one. one. So I think that it was the looking small, not having a womanly body yet. Because it's really in reference to the fact that boys didn't look at her. She was really obsessed with boys. She was like very obsessed with being desired, which we see a lot in a lot of these memoirists. And mm. also a lot of people in the world. Me. Mm. I like when people like me. Who doesn't? By the time she's a teenager, her and her mom are fighting all the time. She wants to go party. She's getting a bit wild. Her mom is obviously the strict Catholic woman who's working from morning to night. She wants Jared to do more chores. Jerry always has odd and end jobs that she's always coming and going from. Her mom's always fresh away with her. They fight as normal teenager mothers do. But when your parents are divorced, you always get the option to play them on each other. So what does she do? She moves in with her dad. I actually found this to be a really like mature moment that she has where she moves out and she's like, I don't hate my mom and I don't not want to see her. Us being around each other is too contentious and I just need space. I wonder if this is like her literal diary entry or if it's edited for smooth reading. I had that wonder too. This is littered with her diary entries from her childhood. And I'm always like, are they literally your diary entries though? Because some of them are deeply insightful. And I'm just like, were you? As a writer, current day Jerry Hallowell has kind of the reflection that we always want from our writers, which is that she's like, I recognize now that I was such a brat that my mom had made so many sacrifices and she just was trying to do what was best for me. And I couldn't have been easy. I was hormonal and lashing out, but I was still a teenage girl and I decided to go live with my dad. Yeah, and I think that that's really fair, especially for the teenage stuff. Sometimes we look at these things when someone is a little bit older and making some bizarre choices and we're always like, okay, what the fuck was going on here? But I do think for like a kid to be acting like an insane person, kids are kids. (laughs) And kids are kids and teenagers are demons. (laughs) (laughs) So she moves out. She's not in school anymore. She has just like shitty dead end jobs. She's the front girl at a hotel and she loses that after a few months. She watches movies all days and makes sure that they're formatted properly. She works at fish and chips shop. She works cleaning up here. She'll work anywhere. They'll give her a buck. She's always low on cash. She moves in with her dad. And she also becomes very involved with the London underground rave scene. So this is when this type of partying wasn't as common. So it was all underground. You had to like wait on a corner. There was a network of phone calls and numbers and you had to like go find the warehouse or the airport hangar or whatever. Everyone would go to a bunch of bars on a strip. And then when the time came, they would give you a signal and then everyone would run out to these minivans that would show up and pick everybody up. And then they would create like a minivan caravan that would all drive out to this secret location. That was like a farm or a warehouse. And then some legitimate establishment started to pick up on this party style. So then there were these actual clubs that were hosting these kinds of parties. And so she got a job there as a go-go dancer. She was getting wild though. And she was getting so wild and acting so reckless that at one point she like stole her dad's car and drove it all night. And when he woke up at 6 a.m. and it wasn't there, he called the police on the stolen car. And when she came home, he kicked her out. She had an older sister that she was very close with who owned a home. She rented her out a room. She says at one point after one of these raves, she invited everyone back to her apartment for a party. The party went on until 3 p.m. the next day, (laughs) at which point her sister, Karen, Karen, kicked her out. And then at this point, she was dating this guy, Neem, who had a sister who was like, I have an idea. There's this empty cottage on the council estates. And she just started squatting in there and she fixed it up all nice. And then she got a letter from the government being like, you have to get out of here. She went to the court date and she's like, most squatters just get out. (laughs) I went to the court date thinking that I could explain to them I really needed the house. They did not sympathize with her situation. They did say, get out. She had this drug dealer friend who would just like drive her around town. And when she had this court date, she borrowed his suit so she went in this oversized man's suit so she shows up at court in this oversized man's suit she said she had to have her hands in her pockets because it was just too big and if she took her hands out of her pockets her pants would have fallen down she was like I just think that that made me look cocky and maybe that's why they sided against me and it's like that's not why (laughs) it's because you were illegally living in this house 
She's run around town. She has a pretty empty life, it sounds. She realized when she got kicked out of her sister's apartment and had nowhere to go that she didn't have any real friends. All these people that she thought she should be able to call were not friends. They were party people. And I think that was a real eye-opening experience for her. And this is where we start seeing the bouts of pretty serious mental illness come in. She said she spent her 18th birthday alone and in the squat, just like drinking a whole bottle of wine in the bath by herself, not worried about if she were to die. So Neem, her boyfriend, was really in and out, possibly getting back with his ex. She was just in a very bad place. Then one day, she found a lump on her breast. She went to the hospital. They had to get it removed and then biopsied. And so it was this whole surgery. It took three days before she found out if she had cancer or not. And she woke up from the surgery expecting to look under her gown and find that they had just sliced her newly sprouted boobs off. It turned out to not be cancer. It was just a weird lump that turned out to be fine. But that time really freaked her the fuck out and made her be like, okay, you're 18 years old. Get your shit together. You could die at any moment or be without boobs. And that was really scary for her. So she decides to get her shit together. She gets this opportunity to be a dancer in Majorca where they hire these girls to come out for the whole summer. They put them up. You dance at their clubs. And I mean, it's summer in Spain. So she goes dancing in Spain. This is where one of the other dancers tells her a little bit about glamour modeling, which is topless modeling, which is, I guess, huge there. This is a British thing I didn't know about. I guess Paige three in the sun it was just pictures of boobs i think british people are pretty chill about boobs isn't the sun their new york times <laughs> do you think that our new york times would be like a little bit more easy to digest if there was a little more boob i get that british people are more laissez-faire about an areola but imagine if the new york times just had an entire page dedicated to like hotties so in mallorca she's dancing and she's making like a night to dance all night. It sounds kind of fun. She, interestingly enough, moves to Mallorca thinking it'll be a healthy lifestyle change. She's like, so I started work at midnight. I got off about 5 a.m. I would have a cup of tea and wind down to Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry, looking at the ocean. Then I'd wake up around noon, bop around, sun myself. And she's like, this was the healthiest I ever went because I'd also go swimming a lot. And it was keeping me fit. And I was eating like pasta. And that was like the healthiest food I'd ever had. So this was her growing up. Meanwhile, her mom's still like calling her and screaming that she needs to become a teacher. So here she learns about glamour modeling because she's living with other girls who are models. There's a whole group of women. The way that we have like just groups of hot girls online who are in Ibiza on Instagram, they used to be like go-go dancers and models and just these hot girls who could kind of like live in these model apartments because you didn't necessarily have to be a literal model, but they were all just trying to make it big in these hot girl jobs. So she meets other hot girls. One of them tells her that she's gaining too much weight. So this is the first time that she ever makes herself throw up after eating a bunch of food. She finds a lot of comfort in food when she's lonely and she will do a pretty intense binge. She says she had never really thought about food or her body before this. But once that one model called her overweight, she like couldn't stop thinking about it. And she really starts turning to food. She says that it had always been a place of stress for her because it's the one time her family was together. So her parents were always fighting at dinner. I do think if my mom had made me eat my own cauliflower puke, it would like... <laughs> Give you a weird relationship with food. <laughs> a weirder relationship with yeah. food. And she goes, after a while, I felt quite bloated and uncomfortable. Excuse myself from the others. I went to the toilet and looked in the mirror. Am I fat? I must be. I've eaten too much. What can I do? I went into the toilet and locked the cubicle door. The tiles were cold against my knees. The idea of making myself throw up wasn't something I'd heard about from anybody or read in a magazine. The word bulimia meant nothing to me. As far as I knew, I invented the idea at that very moment as I put my finger down my throat and vomited into the bowl. When I stood up, I felt better. There wasn't much food left in my stomach. I wouldn't get fat. 
Afterward, I rejoined the others, quite pleased with my ingenuity. I didn't plan to do it again. This is what really kicks off a pretty terrible battle. So she gets back to London and starts to pursue glamour modeling. And she's able to get a low-level agent and have like enough success to keep her going. But she still has a bunch of odd jobs that she needs to fully pay the bills. So here's one thing that I want to give her a lot of points for. She has always been a very assertive person, it seems like, in these rooms. She's always been very much like Jenna Jameson style, here's my line. She was never going to go bottomless. But like all of these photographers were like kind of creepos. And she did honestly it's a really good job of putting them in their place. She would say yes to anything in terms of showing up. But then she was good about walking out on a dime, which I think is pretty hard to do. I feel like in the yeah. moment when you have these adult men and she's like 17, 18, and they're actively trying to coerce you into doing things, it's pretty hard to say no. So she gets into auditions because she really wants to be famous. And glamour modeling is like holding her over. But she'll say yes to anything. The way it works is she gets this newspaper called Stages every Thursday. She would go through. She would circle all of the audition opportunities. Basically Craigslist, but it was also the official way to audition for things. Yeah. So she would circle every auditioning opportunity. She would send in her headshots and her resume via mail and then wait to see what callbacks she got and then go to the callbacks. And she was answering things like one example was she went to audition for a movie and the guy just took her to the kitchen and then tried to slow dance with her. And she was like, okay, this is not a movie. <laughs> she's like, is there a script? And he was like, just keep slow dancing. And she's like, I'm going to get out of here. So she does this for like three years. She gets another boyfriend named Sean. She moves in with Sean and his family at one point. She's doing odd and end jobs here and there to make the ends meet. But she is going on every casting. I mean, she's really gunning for it. And her dad is fucking stoked. She has sort of reignited her relationship with her dad and he is very proud of her. She talks about the time she was partying. She goes, I was deeply selfish. And she was like, I didn't show up to birthdays. I didn't show up to events. I wish there was a better reason, but it was truly because all I cared about was partying. And so there's a full year where she basically didn't see her family because... She didn't want to miss out on a rave. She is losing a lot of weight. She is getting really obsessed with her body and she is also just mentally not doing great. She says any rejection or slight could send me into the fridge. I'd binge on whatever I could find and then force myself to throw up. Her one little win that she gets is she lands this job as essentially a deal or no deal model on a game show in Turkey. They film like a billion episodes over a couple of weeks and she ends up becoming like a minor celebrity in Turkey. There does come a turning point where she's with this guy, Sean. She sees he's going down a path of laziness. She's not that interested and she's like, I need to level up and I'm done with glamour modeling. I had to start going for the bigger fish. When we say bigger fish, it's like literally any fish. She's trying to be a TV presenter. She's trying to be a pop star. She's trying to be an actress. At one point, she takes journalism on radio classes so that she can try to become a radio DJ. Someone says they can make her a pop star. So she saves up 300 British squigglies <laughs> to record a demo. She had just turned 21 years old. And she says if she's not famous by 22, she is going to streak at Wimbledon. And then her father passes away. And this sends her into a tailspin. And she really stopped eating. So there was no binging and purging. There was just no food going into her system. She got down to six stones, which I looked up as like 85 pounds. It sounds like it was a pretty terrifying time and she doesn't really glamorize it. So then she's in the middle of this bout of pretty serious depression. She loses all her motivation to really do anything. And then she sees this audition that she had circled and not attended because she had gotten sick that week. And she decides to call them. They were trying to make a girl group. And she decides to just call the number and be like, any chance two months later, you're still looking for people? And they answer and they were like, well, we're doing callbacks of the final 12 tomorrow if you want to come. And she was like, this must be the stupidest thing on earth if I can just phone them and sneak into the final group. But 
she goes. There are 12 girls there, the finalists from this big open audition from a few months back. They have to learn a routine and perform, and then they get broken into two groups. And she pretty immediately realizes that there's a frontrunner group and a dud group, and she's in the dud group. But then she gets moved over to the frontrunner group, and it ends up being her, Mel B, Mel C, Victoria, and a woman named Michelle who become the final group. So they're all immediately moved into this house somewhere else in England where they are given the opportunity to work on their songs. They need to know if the girls will get along, rehearse, perform, and create their music. So there's this big secret investor who's funding this whole thing. He's putting them up in this house. They're working with choreographers. They're working with producers. They're writing music, laying down tracks. So the girls are actually all getting along great. Jerry and Mel B specifically become best friends. The five of them mostly get along. There's one outsider, and you may have guessed it. It's the one you've never heard of. <laughs> if you said Michelle, I don't remember Michelle. Spot on. So Michelle who she describes as blonde with a long nose and not particularly attractive. I will say that felt an unnecessary thing to say about a girl who, as far as I know, has never made it. She says that the other four girls, the two Mel's, Jerry and Victoria, we were the if only girls who had spent our whole lives saying things like, if only they'd choose me and if only I could get a break. Our dreams had started in the days when we sang into hairbrushes in front of the mirror. We had never grown out of them. The fantasies weren't childish to us. They were just as vivid and real as ever. There were people like me, the restless dreamers who refused to accept that the cards they were dealt in life can't be changed. The two Melanies and Victoria were the same. Dreamers like us rarely doubt that it will come true. We just have to work hard and wait for our turn. But then she says, Michelle was different. She explains that Michelle was from a more middle-class background and just didn't have that same drive. She said Michelle's voice was too operatic and she wouldn't take note. She said when they would all practice extra... Michelle was just suntan. So they were about to tell Michelle that they hated her. And luckily, Bob, Chick, and Chris did it for them. <laughs> yeah, they basically were just like, Michelle's not right, booter. But then they were like, okay, so we need a replacement. Michelle was blonde. And they were like, that was the best part about her. So let's find another <laughs> blonde. The experts brought in a girl named Emma B. She was 18, blonde hair, blue eyed, a little baby who had grown up with like a stage mom, basically, in dance and singing classes. A baby, you say? She fit right in. And Jerry had a real affinity for her. She was like, to me... Emma could do no wrong. She was like the sweetest little angel and I had her back. They're trying to come up with an idea for a band name. They came up with like high five, the five highs. They didn't have anything. One day working out, Jerry had this idea. We all are different flavors. Different flavors in the same dish. We're spice. So that's when Spice was born. Just Spice. They spend months practicing, becoming a band, bonding. It seems like they really loved each other. Like they have an undeniable chemistry. They would stay up, jumping on the couch, singing Madonna medleys, having a great time. They all had different levels of experience. Jerry seemingly the least and was deeply self-conscious about that. I mean, she always gets first to say I was worse than everybody else. She's like, I couldn't sing. But when it came to dancing, I also couldn't dance. She had been a go-go dancer for all those years. And she's like, yeah, but doing choreography is different. I'm not going to jump the gun. But if you look at what they were doing, to call it choreography is one of the most generous terms I've ever heard. I will say I found their performances magnetic. I watched them today. Would you say choreography was involved? No. (laughs) Anyway, they have it in November. This big performance. Where they are doing a showcase for industry. Industry. And shockingly, it goes great. They can't believe how well it's gone. Mm -hmm. And they all leave for Christmas break and they have a feeling. So most people go home 
Everyone but Jerry and Mel seem to have a family that they see regularly on weekends. Mel and Jerry kind of become the de facto orphans almost. Like they are always yeah. hanging out, spending holidays together. So they go for Christmas to some beach vacation. And then Jerry comes back. And at this point, she realizes things are bad. So the problem is when they're all together, when Jerry's around people, she's on cloud nine. She's somebody who very much comes alive as a performer. She has fun with her friends. The minute she is alone, her binging and purging was getting horrible. And she was feeling very lonely. Every time she was alone, she was thinking about the loss of her father. She realizes here, she said, ever since dad's death, I'd been treading water. And every time I stopped, I started drowning. So with everyone out of town, she was absolutely drowning. She says, I am lonely. I want somebody to hold me and tell me it's going to be all right. There's no one. I'm binging again. I haven't done that in a while. I feel hateful and disgusted with myself. I'm paralyzed by a black, relentless cloud. So she meets up with Karen and says to her, Karen, I think I'm going mad. Please, I need help. And they decide to take her to a hospital. So they check her into the psych ward. And at first she feels a lot of peace. She's like, I like how clean it is. I like how organized it is. And she was very ready to talk to someone. She really wanted therapy. And they handed her Prozac. After about three days was like, okay, that's how this is. No, we're not doing that. And luckily at that time, everyone was kind of coming back from their vacations. And so it was time to start spicing again. And she just kind of weaned herself off Prozac because she was like, it made me not creative. And that wasn't the help that I actually needed. This reminds me of almost Jenna Jameson's book and that if you don't have a support system that can recognize trauma and grief and the things that you're going through, these major life moments happen and then the ball just keeps rolling. And if nobody is there to stop and be like, hey, let's talk about it. One year later, you'll be an international pop star having not yet acknowledged that your dad died properly. The minute she's back in the house with all the girls, they're feeling good again. They're excited about the buzz and they immediately come together and realize they all hate Chris and Bob and and Chick. They spend the next couple months laying down a little over half an album. They come up with Wannabe. That's their first song. Yes. They know it's going to be hit. They all write it together. They all get in and add little lines. They all work on the harmonies together. Now that they have some buzz behind them and they believe in themselves fully, they're like, we don't think they have what it takes to manage how big of a star we could be. And it's so interesting that they have that intuition. Also, no contract is in place at this point. Mm -hmm. And so now Bob, Chick, and Chris are like, okay, here's the deal for us as your managers. And they see this contract and they're like, oh, baby, no. Basically, they would own the band. They would have no say in the music, the marketing or promotion of Spice. The management would have full creative control. They also would get 25% of everything, which is a huge percent for a management team. And when you're splitting the rest of it between five people... That's a bad deal that they were about to sign. <laughs> Only Mel B and Jerry are at home when the guys are like, no, you have to sign it today or else. And so they're like, okay, we'll get it to you. And then they just pack up the whole house with all the girls gone and just put it in a car and they just drive the fuck away. They leave a note that says, thank you for all you've done. We can't agree to the terms of your contract. I mean, that is so badass. These girls really were not about to be bimbo fronts to an enterprise. All of the biggest female stars have had gumption. Something I really like too, she says, as individuals, they all had their strengths and their weaknesses and they all had insecurities. As a group of five, they like hyped themselves up. And mm -hmm. I really do think like you and I have had this experience, like working as a team is so much better because you're never in it alone. There's always someone to like pull you up when you're feeling down. We believed in us as a group more than any of us could have believed in ourselves as individuals. And I do think that that's very strong that all they really had under their belt was a partial album and they had that one industry showcase that garnered them a lot of hype, but they didn't have connections. They didn't really know what they were getting into. For someone who'd wanted to be famous for so long for being the if only girls to say, actually, this manager is not going to do it for us and let's just start from 
what could potentially be square one, that was a very strong move. Then they just start looking for a new manager. And at this point, there's a lot of buzz and they are turning down big names and they're really proud of themselves. They're like, every time we walked into somewhere and they seemed either like they weren't going to give us the attention we deserved. They weren't going to see us for who we were. We said no. They were working in the studios. She said, we each had our traits in the songwriting department. Mel B was very good at quirky lines and coming up with phrases like zigga zigga ha. <laughs> I seemed to come up with the hook or the play on words that triggered a chorus. Mel C could fill up a song with harmonies or take what I had done and add vocal flourishes. Emma had an ear for really sweet melodies and ballads. While Victoria could suggest a chant here or there. Okay, a dig. But in between the studio sessions, we had spent every spare moment visiting record companies, music publishers, writers, and would-be agents. So they're all living in like their respective childhood homes or just random spots. And she says each morning we would gather at Emma's flat in Finchley and her mother would make us toast and jam. That's so cute. And then they finally end up signing with this manager named Simon, who has this deeply calm demeanor that they found to be very powerful. Then he goes, look, you're going to get your goal with or without me. I'm just here to help you on your way. And I love to watch people grow personally and professionally. And so they were like, this is the guy he's professional and he knows his shit, but he's not here to control us. And that's what they really loved. So now they have a manager and the labels are fighting. Everyone wants them. So they end up signing with Virgin at the end of July in 1995. They get immediately whisked out to LA. It is pretty much determined from day one that they're not only going to be a pop group, but they're going to be like a fucking empire. They're like already going to meet with studios and talk about a potential movie. All five girls in the group did want that. Yes. They were all like, what do you want to do? Be a pop star? Be a movie, the- be a movie theater? <laughs> Who will be the seats? <laughs> Who will be the screen? <laughs> I want to be the curtains. Also, this is when she comes up with her signature look for Ginger with the two stripes in the front, the blonde strips that every TikToker had last summer. She had that bright hair. She was dressing herself. This is where all the thrifting and the clothes making came in. And she was coming up with her own outfits. And they all like had such independent vibes and styles, which just got better and better as they went. And at this point, Simon says, hey, have you noticed that every time you go somewhere, people call you the Spice Girls? And she's like, I had noticed that. And he's like, what if we made that your name? And she goes, that's pretty smart, specifically also because there is, it turns out, a different rapper named Spice already. (laughs) So they become the Spice Girls. And here's the thing is, you'll never believe it, but did you know that success doesn't make you happy? (laughs) So she's having all these things happen and she's saying, today I feel numb. No, not even that. I feel like I'm on the outside looking in at the world once again. I remember the line when I get rich and famous, people deliver it as if everything is going to be okay when it happens, but will I be okay? Will it be all that I'm expecting and more? I'm still living in hope. She's still deeply empty on the inside. And so lonely. And when she's alone, she feels it. So this whole spring, they're finishing up their first album. They're really refining these characters that they're embodying. And she's says they're really trying to play down the perception of them being a manufactured group. And here's something that I find really interesting that I kind of wanted to talk about really quick Mm -hmm. because she plays into this quite a bunch that they have to constantly fight this perception that they were a manufactured group, which they did literally meet at an audition for people who are looking to create a girl group. Yeah, I don't understand what manufactured means to her. I was thinking about it because at first I read that and I was like, of course you're a fucking manufactured group, just own it. And then I was like, actually, I've changed my mind. I think the bands that come together on reality shows, like Fifth Harmony was a manufactured group. One Direction was a manufactured group. But like, how do bands come together in general? Someone has to pull the trigger to say, I want to put together a band. Well, I guess there's that like, we were all in high school together. We started a rock band. Liam and Noel Gallagher 
we're not manufactured group. Yeah, because they just grew up together getting the shit beat out of them by the same dad. And they thought, that's a trauma band. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. is like even rock groups that come together, sometimes come together from like a bulletin that someone will put up. So what's the difference between an audition flyer and a bulletin that someone puts up in their school? I would say the difference is when there's industry money backing versus yeah. like we're going to try to write the music and make a go of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a difference. There is totally a difference. I'm just saying I don't think it's as stark of a difference as people think it is because I think that still it isn't going to pop off if it's not good. I mean, they left their, the people that manufacture them, they left the factory. Yeah. The Barbies are running wild (laughs) and they're building themselves now. Now they're doing all this press, finishing up the album. They have a little bit of a tiff about what the first single is going to be because it was going to be wannabe the whole time. And then all of a sudden their management team was like, what if we didn't do wannabe because the first single is kind of hard to sell and the second single is what pops off. So let's save our best for second. And they were all like, fuck no. So they drop Wannabe as their debut single and boy, oh boy, does it literally change the world. In the second week, it's number one on the charts. So then they're immediately after Wannabe is dropped, whisked off to Japan and it's there that Wannabe goes number one. And then she says this, which I think is interesting. Fame is a gradual thing and I didn't have time to really think about it then. In many ways, it's like an addiction that creeps up on you unexpectedly. There are pivotal moments, but for the most part, it happens out of sight and it's controlled by other people. So I agree with some of it. Fame is a gradual thing is a weird thing for her to have said because literally she left for Japan and nobody and then she came back to paparazzi at the airport. She just kept getting more and more famous for the next two years. She says that she didn't feel famous until they lit the Christmas tree. To go from nobody to one week later, paparazzi at the airport to five months later. I mean, she has a pretty weird view of all timelines and I don't think that this is the only one. I mean, she literally was like 22 years old being like, if I'm not famous now, when? She's writing this memoir as it has been at 26. <laughs> it's funny because she goes, I didn't really have time to think about it then. I would say it's the opposite of gradual because it happened so fast. She never had time to like take it in and consider it. One day she was so famous. So Wannabe stays number one for seven straight weeks. When they were in Japan is because they were like, we're going to hit Asia first. Asia is usually the last market that people promote in, but we're going to go Asia first. We're going to drum it all up in England and then they're going to hit America last when there's a fuck ton of buzz about them. Right out the gate from the minute that song is released, they are working. She says, up at 6am, picked up and driven to TV studios, makeup, rehearsals, and an interview at Breakfast TV. Back in the cars to drive to Central London. Two teen magazine shoots with different outfits, hair and makeup, interviews with The Sun, Daily Mirror, and The Independent. A radio phone-in program and a charity appearance. And that was just their day every day. They did not get a break until Christmas. They did not get a day off until Christmas. Also, it was a reporter writing an article about them who coined their spice names, which like became an absolute part of their identities. And I don't think I feel good about Scary not naming herself that. I did not know that Scary didn't come up with that on her own. And it made me feel very sad for her that she had to endure that because it feels deeply racist. And then I looked it up and she does have a memoir and we will be doing that. I'm really excited to read that one. That is now on the list because I'm very interested in what her perception of being deemed the scary one is because in my perspective, Ginger was scary as shit. I actually kind of think Posh is the scariest one because she had an icy spice to her. They are skyrocketing to fame and fortune. They are the biggest girl group that the world has ever seen. And they have yet to perform. They've released Say You'll Be There, 
which becomes also a number one hit and becomes a Christmas time hit, which is huge. To have a number one song at Christmas is like a really big deal. Yes. So now they have two back-to-back number one hits. It feels like a Christmas number one is like a US song of the summer. Is that what that is? Because she kept being like, to have a Christmas number one hit. And I'm like, I don't know. Our family's gathering around the fire and listening to Say You'll Be There. I guess. (laughs) England is weird. (laughs) Again, they have not performed yet. Then they're doing SNL. And this is a big opportunity for them to showcase their chops. Yeah, because the U.S. was the last market they had to tackle. Yeah. But they went number one at the U.S. too. So they're blowing up and their days are insane and they're being rushed from place to place and the news will not stop. And of course, Jerry's got her skeleton, which is actually her exodermis, which is the breasts. With the giant fame comes insatiable tabloids that need to write about something. They have exes coming out of the woodwork to talk about them. And unfortunately for Jerry, this also means hella nudes. Her management gets a call from somebody saying, listen, I've got a naked photo of Jerry for 40,000 pounds. I'll kill it. And Jerry's basically like, look, we could not buy back every naked photo of me out there. You have to just let it run because there's no way to kill the story otherwise. Like once they figure out it's out there, the tabloids will keep going until they get one. And weirdly enough, it takes them a very long time to find one. So she just lives in absolute fear for two months about what the backlash will be over her naked photos. And she is constantly in fear. She's constantly being asked about it because it comes out a tabloid fakes a publicist into confirming that these photos exist, even though they don't have one yet. So now it's out there that there are photos and there's just like this mad dash hunt for somebody to find a naked photo of Jerry Hallowell. And it takes a toll on her. She is now going into interviews, watching what she said. Her and Mel B had both been kind of like the louder, outspoken ones who did most of the interviewing. Now she's taken a step back. She's very reserved. She lives in fear. It turns out this conversation just makes them more famous. The fact that people are obsessive about finding these photos, the fact that people are constantly talking about them, it only adds to the hype. It makes her the sexy one. And they honestly all have her back as soon as the photo finding does get leaked. They quote one of their own songs. They're like, as we say in Wannabe. If you want my future, forget my past. <laughs> yeah, which is like a perfect sound bite. So she's still on the road. It's brutal. They're getting sick. They're working like dogs. I mean, she is so psychotically overworked. At one point she writes in her diary, I'm praying that I get malaria so we get a day off. I mean, they're getting sick all the time. Every day there's a new city. So with their first album, a banger of a success, they get to work immediately on making a second album and a movie at the same time. They still have yet to go on tour. They still have yet to do a full length performance. And they are filming Spice World, which their manager Simon's brother wrote over six weeks with a mobile recording studio parked out front where they're just making their next album. That is a very hectic six weeks. This is where they start to get really mad at Simon and with all good reason because I get that they're this cash cow but I think to ask a band in one year to put out an album, do a national press tour, do a movie and do another album all within 12 calendar months is like truly chaotic. I mean, they literally couldn't handle it. And she was begging for a week off. After the movie, she was like, please give me one little week off. And he's like, the problem is if I give you a week off, then everyone's going to want a week off. And she's like, okay, can we all have a week off then? (laughs) And he was like, you can have a day off. And at that point, she turned and said, what are my fucking rights? And that's when she called the lawyers and the accountants for the band and found out, as she says, that we were a bigger asset to him than he was to us. And it was not like that original contract that they had been offered where their manager owned them. He was an employee. So they're making Spice World, which we will be watching for this week's Patreon episode. They are recording their second album, which I will be listening to after (laughs) we record this episode. But she's still not happy. She said, isn't it funny how the most enjoyable events seem to be the least pleasant for me? Perhaps I'm tired or maybe I have such high expectations that I can't help being disappointed. Take me home. That's where I want to be right now. Far, far from here. 
Where is it? I've been living in rented accommodations in other people's houses since I was 16. Home keeps changing. She is not doing good. Then they start training for Istanbul. So this is going to be their first big concert. And much like in Spice World, their management and their teams rent out a mansion for them to live in and train in. And they spend a month getting prepared for this big show before they go on their first big tour. They're like flipping out because this is a pretty make or break moment. They have at this point had a hit record, recorded their second record, which is expected to be a pretty big deal. They have a movie under their belt and they still haven't proven to the world that they can perform. So it's a pretty big concert. Luckily, it goes insanely well, but they don't even have time to enjoy it because immediately they're jetted off to the next show. Again, if you have time to see what it took them one month to prepare. I loved every second of it. Things do start to come to a head at this point, though, with Simon. Simon has to get surgery at this point, and she is once again asking for a week off. And he's like, no, we're prepping for the second album to drop. And your first one did 18 million records. So now the second one has to do 19 million records. And at this point, her binging and purging is getting horrible. It is getting out of control and she is scared for herself. And I think she's still looking for the help that she had asked for two years earlier and never gotten. And she says that in consulting their lawyers and figuring out what her rights were with this band to try and get some time off, she says, I realized I was quite prepared to leave. This is now one year into the success, but about two years into the Spice Girls that she is just like, oh, actually, I could take it or leave it. The only thing she cares about is the girls. Everything else she's not having fun with. She says she used to love chatting up strangers. And she says the only people that she's had a conversation with that aren't part of her inner circle are like business class people on airplanes. She's becoming one of those people who's like, my best friend is the paid security guard. Yeah. Also heard the girls are not falling apart and that they're not getting along. It's just that these days are so exhausting that at the end of the night, they go into their hotel rooms and they want to go to sleep. It's not that fun. We're sitting on a bus, staying up all night because we're just so excited to be here. It's like nonstop work. As soon as you get to the first class airplane seat, you want to sleep. As soon as you get to the hotel, you want to sleep. They're either fully on or asleep. They said at one point they were doing this event where they had a tour bus full of contest winners and they were on this bus doing a tour of France and they were like at a stoplight and they all locked eyes and then sprinted off the bus and went running through the streets of Paris. And it feels like that was one of those little flash in the pan moments where they all had fun again. That fun moment was them sprinting away from their managers and their fans. So she's sitting talking to her lawyer, trying to figure out what her deal is. It's October 16th and she gets a call from Mel B and she's like, me and Mel B are always intuitive like that. And Mel B is calling to say, I can't fucking take Simon anymore. And Jared goes, you'll never guess who I'm sitting with right now. The people who can help us get out. They call the rest of the band. It turns out everybody's on board. Everyone's been worked to the bone and they can't take it anymore. So they get together and they decide that they're going to drop Simon. They have to do it very secretively. But the problem is he had all their contacts. He had everything set up. They were about to embark on an international tour and he had set it up. Simon managed our lives. He had all the phone numbers, dates, schedules, and contacts that kept this enormously complex machine moving. He had also ensured that these people around us, the stylists, drivers, bodyguards, PAs, and publicity people were on his payroll as well. Without these, we were lost. So basically, after they fire Simon, they are without security. Like they land at the airport and just have to get to the car. And luckily, the drivers are subcontracted separately. So they have a ride home. And she's like, the five of us were walking down a busy lane to our lawyers. And she's like, I honestly think people didn't think we were the Spice Girls because it was too easy. (laughs) There's no way they could just be walking down a busy street, all five of them, without security. And then keeping the machine running without a manager ended up being more work. So this whole firing so that they could finally get a fucking break backfired enormously. I mean, getting rid of Simon, I think, was a good call, but they should have put someone else in place. 
But everyone doubted them. So as soon as it leaks out to the press that Simon had been sacked, everybody's like, what are they doing wrong? These girls are egomaniacs. And everybody bet against them. And the narrative was really that they were these brats who just like didn't appreciate somebody who had helped them out, which is so fucked up because they had been doing all the fucking work. So now they redouble their efforts to try to prove everybody wrong. So this whole scheme that was cooked up so that they could get a weekend off, they didn't get another weekend for months. They now had to rebook the entire tour themselves and figure out all the logistics with two months notice. Luckily, it does sort of rebond their relationship because she said whenever things got tough, they all came together so hard. And that sounds quite lovely. That's girl power, baby. They have some other pretty high moments. They perform for the queen. And of course, the fans still love them. And that's huge for them. She loves Italy. The Italian fans are something that keeps her going the entire time. She's like, you go. And they're just chanting outside your hotel room the whole time. Like a Cinderella for fame. She's like, I just wake up to the sound of my own name being tripped at me. <laughs> She's like, I wish I could have that as an alarm clock. She actually does re-solidify shit with her family. Like her and her mom get fairly close again. She's always flying her sister or her brother out whenever she has like one minute off. She realizes with her busy schedule that the Thing that matters as family and she's like okay who is here when I'm alone and she's like I guess just my mom and my sister and my brother so her sister kind of mentions oh you have this pattern where like every year around winter time you pick a boyfriend and then dump him by Valentine's Day and it is really interesting that after this boy crazy youth as soon as she found a passion and something to focus on she was just like well, what boys I do think she was too busy to find a boyfriend I mean she was traveling every day so it seems like the minute she had a free time she'd find a boyfriend the other ones had boyfriends I think if you have a long-term boyfriend, that's different. Eventually, she has this sort of epiphany where she realizes that the reality would never match the scene in her imagination and fantasy is always better. And she has this devastating line. This is very much untreated depression at this point where she says each accomplished ambition is a dream that is dying. There's nothing worse than achieving your dreams and realizing that they're not your dreams anymore. And now you don't even have dreams left. Now you don't even have hope. It's also the fame is getting to her. I'm sure they were all picked apart equally, but it seems like with the skeletons of the glamour modeling and stuff, she couldn't take it anymore. And I think because she put herself out there so much, it's kind of the zany one. She had a hard time with the press. People were always picking apart the shit that she did. She said that when they danced for the queen, she like didn't really know how to curtsy. So she did a little bob and then it was reported that she didn't curtsy for the queen. She goes, we did the smash hits poll winners party and the Spice Girls were voted the best band. I was the least fanciable female and the worst dressed person. I must admit that the next morning hearing the radio reports, I started to cry. I was so upset. My morale is pretty low right now. I need a motivator and reminder person who can whisper in my ear all the positive things I have done. Otherwise, I wallow in the negative. At this point, there rolling out the second album and they're getting ready to embark on a world tour to promote the second album. And she kind of decides in her mind that September when the tour ends back at Wembley stadium in London, she was going to make that her last show with the Spice Girls. So something interesting about when they had all started and they were living that random little house being paid for by chick or whatever, they had all come together and been like, we'll give it two years where we'll, she keeps saying, you get in, you get out and you shake it all about. And she's like, well, I'll give it two years to do it while we're young. The minute I read that line, I was like, I think they mean to see if it happens for them. I think they're all like, we'll give it two full years, the best we've got. And after two years, nothing has worked for us. We'll get out and admit it was a failure. But she was like, okay, we did our two years where we made as much money as we could. And now we get out. I don't think that anyone else had the inkling that like when you were the most famous band in the world, you would just be like, all right, that's enough. Yeah. So she had this idea. She would play it like an associate's degree. Just go and give it a great two years and then walk away with her medal or something. And so she kind of soft launched this concept when the other girls were yammering about future plans. Like maybe we'll try and do a TV show like the monkeys. Maybe we'll do this or that. And she basically said that she was thinking about 
leaving in September, just kind of dropped it in conversation and everyone just thought she was joking. And it's like, why wouldn't they think she was joking? Like you were the if only girls. You always wanted a shot. All you ever wanted was a chance to make it big. It's been thrust upon you and you can't believe that the others want to continue. You said the one thing you guys all had in common was your ambition and your drive and your want to be famous. At this point, it's been 18 months of you living your dream. Yeah. And so you're like, all right, well, that was a funny little little afternoon. I do wonder if they had been able to take like a summer off if she would have left. I mean, this has literally been 18 months where they've done two albums, a movie, and they've been nonstop traveling the world. And they've gotten just Christmas for a break. It was fucked up with Simon did to them. And I do think if Simon had been a better manager, the band would have stayed together. Yeah, but then would they have petered out, you know? And at least that means at some point there would have been a happy medium where they were still doing shows and then like getting to go home and sleep. Yeah, I mean, it is crazy that the only options were that they were running on zero sleep, living on a plane, doing a world tour, or they were broken up. All she wanted was work-life balance. I know. You and all of us, Jerry, you and all of us. So she has this plan that now she's ramping up for September. And after that initial conversation she does clarify it with the band that she really does want to leave in September. And she starts taking other meetings and thinking about other things. She's considering being a TV presenter. She has always wanted to be an activist. She's like obsessed with using her power to change the world, which I think is quite noble. She gets this opportunity to talk about breast cancer on a TV show because she had that breast cancer scare when she was younger. And they are basically like, no, we don't want you doing that interview. Because they have a very democratic thing where nobody can do anything without checking it with the band. So this is May. She is leaving in September officially. They're waiting to announce it because they don't want this whole summer tour to be all about her. Mm -hmm. And then when they say no to this interview, she kind of just breaks down sobbing, calls her brother and is like, I have to actually leave now. So she escapes. She goes to Paris and there she waits for her brother to come meet her. And she doesn't know what to do. There is a fucking frenzy. At first they say that she was feeling unwell and that's why she missed the performance that night. But then after like 48 hours, it can't be hidden anymore. And there is a 24-hour news cycle of where is Ginger Spice. She had become kind of friends with George Michael over a period of time. And so she escapes to George Michael and his partner Kenny's house. And they take care of her. Then she ends up going with them to LA because they're going to their LA house for a while. She just kind of lives with them for kind of a while, like months. So I will say at this point in time, 2021, they have obviously repaired their relationship. And the Spice Girls have since reunited several times. But she talks about Like there was no real reason that I left. I just couldn't take it anymore. But they wanted a crazy story. Like I had a mental breakdown or something. She did kind of have a mental breakdown or something. Yeah. As we said with all of these women. Yeah, they had a breakdown and it was fully deserved. Her eating disorder had come to a crashing point. She was breaking at the seams because of the, the public attention. When she was gone... She said that her parents had to find a hotel to stay in. Her brother, her sister, and her home, everything was mobbed. She couldn't go everywhere. There was a $500,000 prize on the first photo of her. And she was grieving her debt. She couldn't take it, and she had to get out. And I think that that's valid. I don't know who in that position would have done better. But it definitely wasn't like she woke up and was like, I think I'm feeling not Spice Girly today. She then decided she wanted to go into charity. She auctioned off all the clothes that she had made herself. Her and her sister had made that Union Jack dress that's so famous. A lot of it, she had figured out her own style. She sold it all to help a children's cause. I guess it ends where it begins with her being 26-year-old writing this book in LA, which is interesting because it starts with her in LA writing this book. 
And LA, she was in about a month after she left the Spice Girls. So she's like, I don't know what I want to do next. She kind of leaves it open to be a TV presenter, maybe be a writer. She wants to be a writer. She says she wants to spend a year giving back. She became a UN ambassador for reproductive rights, which I think is really interesting because I think in like 2007, she said she would not define herself as a feminist. What did you think of this book? I really liked it, honestly. It was exactly what she wanted in a story about somebody who got everything they wanted and it wasn't what they seemed. Like it, Guitar Girl. Exa- no, but really like Guitar Girl. It was about a girl who all she wanted was to be famous. I mean, she wasn't particularly talented. She did the work. So I think she actually was kind of talented. I mean, the way that she always put herself down, she never gasses herself up. The only thing she ever takes pride in is her clothing. Some of her ideas, she'll like mention that she wrote a certain lyric that she's proud of. She'll mention that she came up with the idea for a song or like the name the Spice Girls. She was very interested in all the business aspects of it. But... Whenever she's talking about her singing or her dancing or whatever, she always puts herself down. And I wonder if she's actually deeply untalented or if it's like residual effects of always being kind of referred to as not the talented one in the group. Does she truly believe she's a bad singer or have people written that enough times? I truly believe she's not. I would never have seen that girl sing and dance and gone, you should be a professional singer and dancer. Yeah, but someone did and then she become world famous. So there's something that worked. Yeah, and I think it is her clothing and her energy. I do think she has like a cool vibe and she had like a persona that stuck out with like the big hair. So I do think she has that. She was right to be like, I'll be famous at anything. I'll just keep trying my hand at everything. I mean, Mariah Carey, at seven years old, was studying songs on the radio. Right. Being like, what is a hit? Doing I'm not scales. saying she's a great singer. I'm just saying that she like calls herself bad at it a lot. And I'm like, well, you can't be that bad. I don't think she's bad. I don't think anybody ever said you could be number one in the world. But I think being a pop star is a different thing than being a talented singer. Totally. And so I'm saying she's not a talented singer. I don't know. I definitely don't think she's a talented singer, but I do like think about the way she talks down about her abilities so much when she was one of the most famous pop stars in the world at one point is interesting to me. It feels very like getting in front of the conversation. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But I also think it's like there's a reason it was the conversation. I mean, I liked this book a lot. I think it really condensed like the emptiness of it that we get from a lot of these memoirs. But it was such a true experience of being like, it's so fun to have 5,000 people scream your name and then to go home and be alone and exhausted and have the flu and be empty and feel unloved is so alone. And then I think she's the only person because she was in a group and it wasn't just her. She did have the opportunity to walk away from all of it. Whereas I don't think when you're alone, you feel like you have that choice. It was a really interesting story of like the ups and then downs. Yeah. I think it had to do with the fact that she was kind of a character as Ginger Spice. Mm -hmm. And so there was kind of a separation. She was a part of a group and she played a character in that group. And so walking away, like she talks about how as she was starting to lose interest, she was dyeing her hair more and more subtly and she was like coming back into being Jerry instead of being Ginger and I think that that was an escape route in her mind. I mean I thought this book was great. I think that it's so interesting. I didn't realize the Spice Girls were only really two years. I mean barely. She quit in May. Well then they continued on that world tour and then they did another full album. Yeah but the Spice Girls as we knew it was only two years and that is so fascinating because it's not some two year flash in the pan that you look back on you're like oh yeah I think I remember that. It was a two year flash that like to this day strikes excitement in people's souls. They did a reunion concert in I think 2012 or something that sold out in 38 seconds. The way that people are just like clamoring for more Spice Girls, even though, like you said, how did this have a fucking chokehold that happened when you were three years old? That's so crazy that they had this impact. It's very crazy the amount that they've created in two years of two albums. 
I mean, I really remember those Spice Girl lollipops. Chupa chupas. Yeah, the chupa chupa lollipops. Those were like an important thing in my life. A status symbol. Because I was so young, I didn't even know she left. So I actually did not know what was coming when I was reading this book. I guess in my head, I had a feeling that somebody left, but I would have guessed it had been Victoria. I'm really blown away about why. Like the fact that there was no contention within the group. I wonder if she downplays it. I'm excited to hear Mel B's experience of her leaving, what it was like for actually the girls in the group. I wonder if this was like a very Lorelai Gilmore retelling of what it was like, the magical times. Also, I think it's important that this book was written literally the minute she left. So this was a huge PR piece for her. And I feel like we're not seeing it through that lens because we're now reading it. So removed from the situation that we're like, who even fucking Like, what does she have to lose? But at that point, this was her relaunch into the world. So you do have to wonder, how honest was it? Because she did leave those other girls in a lurch. Like, for being such a democracy, she did fuck them over when she just abandoned them one night in May. And I do think her whole story about, oh, they wouldn't let me do the breast cancer interview, she was going to have to fly to England for the day to do it. I do understand that if it didn't make sense scheduling. But also, she says that as soon as she told them she was leaving, the group kind of reformed without her because they were making plans for after September. And what were they going to do later... And she started feeling left out. And I think she underestimated how bad it would feel to be left out. I think that she was so glowing in this about how close and how wonderful all the other girls were because she had really left them in a lurch. And I think if she had been like, and they were mean to me and we used to get into fights about X, Y, Z, that would have been really cunty. Yeah. I wonder if it was almost a love letter to them. Like, remember all the good times? Remember that time we got locked out of my apartment? Remember that time we had to get rid of that annoying guy who wouldn't go away? It was like a true interesting look at fame. Thanks, Jer. Thanks, Jerry. We will, on the Patreon this week, there was a lot of celebrity name drops that we didn't even have time to get into. There's a whole story about a time they broke into Courtney Love's hotel that I can't wait to talk about. Yes. I know Ashley is looking to do an Oasis recap of all the mm. interaction they had with Oasis and all the other... They had like a real feud. Top name celebrities. Liam wanted to chin them. We're also going to be doing Spice World. We'll watch and we'll do a whole Spice Girls recap. I'm very excited. Thanks, Wormies. I love you. Bye.